0: Welcome back to the Healthcare Insight Podcast. I'm Eric Silberman.
1: And I'm Jane Crosby. Thanks for coming back. We're really excited about this week's interview with Megan Anderson from HubSpot.
0: Yeah, Megan is the VP of of marketing for for HubSpot. And we had a really interesting dialogue with her. The thing, Jane, that that kind of the discussion with Megan drove home for me was this kind of continued importance that we place, that we hear so many of our guests place, that we know our audience places on quality content and authenticity of voice and just how much that thread pulled through everything we talked about with Megan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think my favorite part was how that connects to your paid media strategies. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot over the past couple of years as we've seen more and more players join the healthcare marketing space is that Really, digital campaigns are becoming a commodity. Anybody can run a good Google search campaign. Anyone can run a good paid Facebook campaign. But what really drives performance is messaging that connects with people in a moment of need and delivers them to the appropriate next best action in their healthcare journey. And I think Megan really illuminated that opportunity for healthcare marketers and some of the things she talked
0: about. This is so, so true. You know, she talked about ads as content and i mean i gotta admit and I, th- I think i even said it in in the interview you know i i, I really have historically come from this place i think is ads in kind of one space content in another but when i look at some of the work that you're doing with some of your clients jane and that, that we're doing across the organization that ads as content piece and delivering value in the paid ad space It really makes a difference in an otherwise commoditized market. The same thing, to me, extends to content that is developed in general on behalf of marketing. This Venn diagram of intersecting business needs with what consumers are looking for, that's the piece that makes the difference in the authenticity space, in my view. Right? Content, ads, a lot of this really has become commoditized, Except for those that are doing it really, really well, and for me, it's about that really intentional and thoughtful approach of really meeting consumers where you are, where they are, just just like you just articulated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting point too that Megan brings up, and that there's a variety of different things that as marketers we have the task of, of writing, and I think healthcare marketers struggle sometimes to find a balance of engaging and entertaining, yet really authoritative and high-performing too. And there's your moments to get creative um, on social media and in your blog. There's the times that you really need to help people get to the next step and that your content should be more authoritative and confident and direct. And I think training your team to recognize those different opportunities and writing accordingly to drive performance across your content engine is really important. One of the things I think we've seen this year is this intersection between growth strategies and brand strategies. Strategies. And I think content's really at the core of that. Content is no longer just a brand play. It's definitely crossing over into our clients' growth strategies, too.
0: I think that's really smart. And, and I absolutely see that. You know, one of the things that stands out to me in thinking about what works for business. Works in so many other aspects of, of life as well, and, and, and vice versa. You know, kind of the, the, the classic observation of art imitates life and, and life imitates art as it relates to content marketing work is when we see kind of great, really authentic, connected content for brand purposes, the idea that that can also cross over into growth strategies for clients. You know, that, that to me is a testament to the value of content done very well. But then I was reflecting on the question I think you asked, Megan, about like advice for young professionals and authenticity and having a perspective and a voice and not being afraid to share it. You know, to me, that was that was one of these examples where we see like, well, that's exactly the thing about content and making sure that if you're as a business able to really meet, consumers at the thing that matters to them and matters to your business. That's the same basic advice, right, that that we would give kind of young professionals or that Megan mentioned, giving young professionals. And it just strikes me, I guess, this continued opportunity to connect who we are in the world of our work to who we are as people and how we connect with one another.
1: It is interesting. And it's been an interesting year for that. Megan talked about it a little bit, just this challenge we're all still having of connecting with each other and forming a good culture remotely. For larger organizations, I'm sure that's even more challenging, both our healthcare system clients and companies like HubSpot with hundreds of people on their marketing staff. I'm sure it's been a challenge for young leaders to have a place and a voice in their organizations. But you're right, Eric, authenticity and trying to add value and support your organization's mission is really the key way to do that.
0: I've been really enjoying, in a lot of ways, the opportunity that the current work environment has created to forge new connection points new types of relationships at work you know get the the discipline that it takes to make sure that you're connecting across team members that you're you know little things like using video meetings instead of phone calls as a way to really up the ante in terms of connectivity and the impact that that has on culture and to me it it feels like that reality for business in 2020 and beyond also extends in a lot of ways to the reality of what we have the opportunity to shape as content marketers, as organizations to consumers in a way that doesn't have the face-to-face connectivity that it once did. I mean, a very, very simple example would be the incredible growth of telemedicine by necessity for our hospital clients, but also as a tremendous opportunity for human connection and revenue stream. And the idea that those two things don't have to live in mutually exclusive spaces, you know, to me is is one of the kind of great opportunities that's been turned out by our our current situation in, in the world.
1: I agree. You know, we just completed on our team, the HubSpot uh, content marketing certification courses. And one of the things that they continued to mention throughout that training was this idea that by consuming content, we'll be better marketers and better content creators. And that's not just healthcare content. It's reading books, watching good TV, reading other blogs, reading the newspaper to get ideas and get inspiration. And I think that's really important too. And something that sometimes we lose sight of in the healthcare environment, that it's not all colonoscopies and mammograms, you can learn something by watching The Mandalorian and thinking about how Star Wars has created this content marketing engine that spans generations. Um, And Megan touched on it a little bit too with like her dedication to Die Hard and how content is not just about the field that you're working in and neither is healthcare. It's really thinking about the life experiences that impact consumer decision-making and what we want from our healthcare partners.
0: It's great, solid endorsement for the opportunity to go watch The Mandalorian on the lunch break today. I, uh, that's that's exactly the enablement I was I was searching for in that regard. Let's let's get into the podcast and into the interview with with Megan Keeney Anderson. Enjoy, Megan Keeney Anderson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. This is fun. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, we're thrilled. We're thrilled you're here. And so, you know, I know I mentioned when we we talked before before we started here that, you know, we're longtime fans, first time callers to to HubSpot. We're a client of HubSpot ourselves for how we use our CRM and a lot of a lot of our or different parts of our organization. But tell us a little bit about you, and tell us a little bit about HubSpot to start.
2: Sure. Um, so I'll flip that and talk about HubSpot first. So, HubSpot is a CRM platform that companies use to build their entire sort of customer experience everything from the website that your customers engage with, to email marketing, to your sales CRM and uh, sales enablement tools, to your customer service requests and the help desk that you host. So, trying to really create this cohesive customer experience all in a single piece of technology to make it more seamless. I have been at HubSpot now for just shy. I'm coming up on 10 years, uh, which is wild. I've been here for quite some time and seen the company really evolve over the years. But one of the things that I think has really been cool is this, this keen observation about how customer expectations change and how companies can kind of evolve with that. Uh, My role at HubSpot is um, VP of marketing. And so I uh, run our brand and editorial strategy, our uh, product marketing, how we take new products to, to market, and then our academy, which is our educational arm full of free classes and certifications that you can take to help level up your own skills.
0: So I love the Academy and and was watching actually a video of yours in the Academy not too long ago about SEO and this, this very thing of customer expectations and the kind of evolution of content marketing. There was a piece of it that really stood out to me and resonated, and it was about ads as content and the opportunity to do things with ads that maybe even just a few years ago weren't possible because of how the customer expectation has changed. Can you talk to us a little bit about your view on that?
2: On ad strategy? Sure. I think it's so funny because we think of ads as these very distinct things from the rest of our content strategy. But really, just because you put money behind something doesn't mean it's different than a different piece of content. In fact, it should be at the same level of quality or higher quality because you're putting money behind it. HubSpot kind of emerged out of this idea that, like, traditionally people had started to kind of filter out ads. They didn't want to be interrupted when they were browsing the Internet. They didn't want to be stopped when they were trying to watch a movie or a show. And they were getting more and more tools to sort of ignore these ads, ad blockers on browsers uh, and the like, fast forwarding on demand shows and so for a while there, you know, ads kind of really just started to decline in effectiveness and increase in costs. But over time, as sort of the strategy for advertising is kind of caught up to the what what the expectations of consumers are, I think ads have gotten better and more relevant in their targeting. So better quality, more engaging, but also, you know, we're now able to target ads in a way that... Um, is much more natural in the flow of how people consume content. It fits with their interests. It fits with their needs. It can take into account what they've looked at before and what they're interested in. And so it's not this sort of blanket, irrelevant ad strategy that's just pounding people over the head anymore. So I think it took a bit of a revulsion to ads for ads to wake up and evolve as uh, as a strategy. And now it's not perfect. There's certainly a plethora of ads out there that are still irrelevant and annoying, but we do have the tools now to both make them better timed, more relevant. And if you match that with a strategy to, uh, to just make them higher quality, I think ads can actually be pretty effective.
0: You know, I feel like that fits really well with what we see in and among our healthcare clients from an ad strategy standpoint, you know we were talking before before the show about the healthcare decision cycle and how it is elongated and often very complex and that in my view really supports a customer driven ad strategy for content it it naturally allows good content to help people along the buying cycle you talked about helping consumers get unstuck in a video of yours that I watched. And and that really, really resonated with me as kind of what good content, ads being a part of that good content can do.
2: And there's, there's an interplay between organic content. So your free content that you don't put money behind and ad content. So you know, you think about researching medical procedures or health-related information, that's a very personal thing. That's a very intent-driven, tailored experience. And so, you know, you can have a strategy in which you're only showing ads to people who have viewed a piece of research or content uh, before that is relevant to that ad. So, they can kind of go hand-in-hand And you're hitting people when they're in that research phase and actually considering, you know, a procedure or a process or or a path for their own personal health. And that's, you know, with health, you hit someone at the wrong time and it's really an affront. You hit them at the right time when they're actually agonizing over some decisions and trying to make some choices and it's really helpful. And that's the big difference is how to get more in tune with the stages of that that consideration process.
1: I agree. That's really good perspective. One of our um, clients on a a past episode talked about how their favorite piece of content that they've created in the last year was an article on leg pain at night and how she loves it because it helps people when they're really frustrated about a thing that many people are challenged by every single day and helps them understand that there's help available. And so I think that's so much of what we do in the healthcare space is figure out what people are struggling with on a day-to-day basis and help them find relief for it. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your background, Megan, you talk about how tech and writing are some of your passions along with Die Hard, which is a separate conversation. I think I've seen all of those like 15 We times. definitely
2: talk about Die Hard. Yep.
1: My youngest brother went to kindergarten the first day at a Catholic school and told his teacher that Die Hard was his favorite movie. So <laughs> I'm sure they called Child Protective Services and had a whole thing about that. But Anyway, one of the things that I think is really challenging is we talk to a lot of clients who are really, really passionate about the tools that they have and the targeting capabilities, others who are all about brand and creative and really strong writing. Mm-hmm. It's a hard skill set to find people who understand the channels that we need to reach people with and are really good writers, too. And I'm really passionate about the fact that good writing is a really critical skill for a modern market marketer. Can you talk a little bit about how to either find that skill set or nurture it amongst your team?
2: You know, it's interesting because there's so many different types of writing too. So you think about that article you talked about. So leg pain at night, think about the mindset of the person who's reading that article. They are quite literally laying in bed at 2am suffering from leg pain with the phone by their bedside, like pulling that up and just Googling to try to figure out what's going on. There's a very particular tone and a very particular writing style for that kind of article that is different than uh, you know a different article that you may write, so I think that there are the fundamentals of writing absolutely, and then there are there's sort of the second level of understanding the context of your writing, understanding the job that your writing is supposed to do so I have we actually split our our content team this might be interesting into people who write thought leadership and people who write for search. And people who write for search not only they're they're both brilliant writers but people who write for search are thinking about the distribution of that as they write about it. They're thinking about how to structure that blog post to make it really scannable because people who are searching for something, they want that information fast and they want to be able to both have it surfaced maybe in a snippet um, in Google search results and even in reading it on site, they want to be able to scan down to understand the point of the article. If you're reading a thought leadership post, if you're reading a point of view about how the healthcare industry is changing You don't have the same mentality when you're going into that kind of uh, piece of content. For that content, you want a little bit more creativity. You want to build up. You want the emotional draw and, and drama of that piece. And it's structured differently. So I think that the real nuance in writing and in teaching writing is to teach people to understand the fundamentals and then understand the cons- the the construct and the context of that you're writing within and the mindset of the people who are actually reading that that copy and how it changes the way that you approach a subject
1: that's really good feedback at, at as healthcare marketers i feel like we're constantly going from writing a great patient story or featuring a provider into writing a new web page for orthopedic surgery and so that's, I think, really important feedback to think about and have maybe different processes and templates around what different types of pieces you're writing for. I feel like there's a middle ground, too, in writing for conversion. And that comes through. And I think a lot of our ad copy, a lot of our landing pages and social media advertising. One of the things that I noticed in a recent article of yours was that you guys found that 71% of people don't trust social ads today because of the pandemic. That's something that we're seeing, too, is it's so much harder to I guess stand above the noise um, with the election and with COVID right now. It's it's really noisy on social media, and so a reliance on SEO and email marketing has been effective. Can you talk a little bit about what is working well to get noticed on social media today using great content and great writing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's funny because everything is different and nothing's different at the same time. So the whole world is is drastically changed that what we deal with on a day-to-day basis is different, but the fundamentals of like what works for content is still the center of that, that Venn diagram of like, what matters to your company versus what matters to the content consumer at the other end. And, you know, they're not going to want to read stuff specifically about your company. um, And you're not going to write about, you know, just whatever, passion they have, because it's not tied to conversion. But there is this golden spot in the middle, the overlap between what they care about and what you care about. And in the pandemic, that shifted a bit. So we found, I'll give you our example, and then I'll bring it back over to healthcare. We sell to growing businesses, right? And when the pandemic first hit, and a lot of offices were starting to close down, a lot of companies that hadn't previously done so needed to move everything online and needed to move everything remote and so we started putting out a bunch of content on how do you move your entire sales team from a field sales team back to an an in-office online sales team and that content did phenomenally well because it is what they were worried about in that moment now fast forward a month later on that content the engagement rate on that started to go down and it's because they had kind of figured that out like they were in it they they had done it right And so our content strategy needed to shift again. And so when I think things don't work on social or even on the blog, it's because you have the, either have the subject wrong or you have the timing wrong. And uh, you really have to pay attention to engagement rates to sort of understand what's, what's the zeitgeist right now? What is it that is that matters to people in this moment? I think that, you know, we found that a lot of, so when the crisis hit, we, (laughs) We maybe like three days after the World Health Organization declared a worldwide pandemic, we had a major product launch and we were going to go out with a huge, we had like for the first time we had a great budget behind it. We we're going to go with like a huge celebration of this new product. And of course, like timing and tone was way off. So we killed that launch. We released the product, but we killed all the promotions and pressed pause on all that. And instead, we leaned into the educational content that was more removed from our product. And we saw engagement on educational content go way up over the summer because people were, you know, they were trying to think about like career changes and pick up new skills because they saw the world and the landscape evolving. And so, they may, you know, maybe someone lost a job and needed to go get certified in a new field. Like we can provide that kind of training. So it was sort of an understanding of what you care about hasn't shifted, but what the world cares about has. And how do you find that new point of overlap? Uh, I think for the healthcare industry, the way I would think about that is, it's a, it's a really interesting time for healthcare, obviously right now, but the, the subject matter within that is also drastically changing. People are having to put off surgeries that they might have otherwise done, or people are trying to understand how to navigate the healthcare system in this time. You want to swing with the culture towards that content and turn up the volume of the, on that in your mix.
0: One of the things that I'm interested in when you think about kind of tuning content around what people are searching for and the kind of realities of, of the moment, mm-hmm. we, we have heard from, from some of our other guests kind of a, a mix of feedback about quantity of content requirements to achieve objectives. And when I think about, you know, the great content that HubSpot produces on your blogs and, and other channels, I'm curious kind of where you land on that philosophically in that quality and quantity matrix.
2: Yeah, I, you know, we've evolved in our thinking on it and I really like the perspective we have on it now versus in the past. So look like every piece of content you put on the internet is a front door to your website. So of course, the more content you put out there the more front doors, the more traffic you're gonna get. Like that's just a matter of physics. However, there is a point of diminishing return there and there, and you can actually cannibalize um, existing content with new content. So what matters is not today is not like the volume of content that you have or the volume of content that you put out on a regular basis. I think you do want like a steady cadence. You don't want to publish something and then let two years go by and not publish anything else, especially on social. If you're trying to build community, you need some some rhythm. What actually matters is on your site, structure matters a lot. So rather than write 15 articles navigating healthcare payments, write one article that is the best on the internet. We call that a pillar page basically, like cannot be beat, best possible approach you have to that subject matter. And then write content over time that is related to that, but not competitive with that and interlink between those. So have all that supporting content that is just less important than that pillar page, link back into that. And that will over time build what we call like a cluster model on your website that really shows Google that that pillar page is has high authority. And that helps it rank better. And so we our model now is actually very intentional content. Be very careful about just cutting loose and writing 150 blog posts that on overlapping topics, know what the architecture of that content strategy is going to be and how each piece sort of builds into and connects to the other one. Cause that's instructive for search on social. You have to run the same tests, right? So we see diminishing returns. If we publish too much on Instagram, we see diminishing returns if we publish too much on Twitter and for every company and for every um, channel that's going to vary wherever that point is, but you got to find that point for yourself and then cut it off at that. It's like, we call them cap channels because you just, you can't flood people's streams. It's, it's tempting to say, Oh, it's just one more tweet, you know, like, let's just slide it in there. And yeah, you can do that if it's really important, but, um, but by and large, like the content you put out there is kind of a contract with the people that are consuming it. And you sort of have to hold up your end of that bargain from a quality standpoint. So we're not pushing for a ton of volume for people these days. We're pushing for consistency and we're pushing for intentionality around what you write, how you structure it, when you publish it.
0: It's great perspective. And, you know, I think about the data that your organization shares on kind of findings, and you mentioned several that you found across channels for yourself there. In your kind of data and research, anything that you're finding today that, that is kind of a particular standout or some things that, that our audience uh, might, might benefit from, from learning from you?
2: We have found, for us, really informative, like how-to articles still and for years have done the best for us. They do better than funny articles. They do better than like even every once in a while, you'll have a really strong point of view piece that will take off and it'll take off through, um, you know, just people handing it from person to person, word of mouth. But our bread and butter is still like people go to the Internet because they want to learn something. And so educational content has always done well for us and also shows us intent really clearly. I think that's gotta be especially true for the healthcare space. I mean, think about how much self-education people do before they make some sort of a commitment to uh, a, a health choice for themselves. And so, and that education can actually come in a number of different formats. You can have the straight how, you know, the straight informational article, but then you can have the community that is built up around that article. We found some good success lately in building communities on Facebook around our, you know, our subject matter at hand is like social media and and marketing strategy, but allowing people to sort of do user-generated content and helping to facilitate that conversation, that's done really well for us. Um, Video got a lot of, um, people have talked a lot about video in the last few years. It's funny, like video, we still see the same trends that like our how-to videos actually do better than any other videos that we do. So those are the main trends that we've seen, and we've certainly seen that amplified after the pandemic hit, because again, people were researching, they're, they're trying to learn things, they're trying to make sense of the world around themselves right now from a thousand different angles. And so any piece of information that helps you do that is great. Um, data always does well for that reason.
1: Megan, you mentioned video and I'm curious your opinion on how to leverage video, especially as a B2B marketer. Is it effective in the B2B marketing space? I know like my husband's constantly on YouTube looking at archery stuff and how to cook cool food with the deer he shot. That kind of stuff makes a ton of sense to me. I personally, when I'm trying to think about how to better position our services and how to help our clients produce really, really great marketing strategies, I'm more of an article person and prefer long form content that I can scan rather than watching a video, as great as the HubSpot videos are. I'm I'm more of a reader. What's your view on that? And what do you guys see at HubSpot?
2: Yeah, I think you make a really astute point that you have to know your audience and know what they're consuming, how they consume it, because it does differ by by buyer by segment by industry side note you've now told me that not only do you watch die hard in your house but your husband is essentially robin hood and you're a reader so i'm coming over this weekend to hang out cuz that sounds like the best house ever but you know where we see video shine is people are you know youtube is the, like the number 2 search engine right behind google in the world and so we see people using youtube to find very quick videos they can watch on a given subject matter. So part of our audience definitely is video-driven. We also had success with podcasts and, you know, Speak of the Devil. When we're trying to, one of the reasons that we started our own podcast was because we were trying to reach like an executive audience, decision makers, VPs, CMOs, people who actually don't have a lot of time to read blog posts and don't really have the interest in it, but they would listen to a podcast on their morning commute or while they're working out. And so for that audience, we found a lot of success with podcasts. For our kind of mid-level marketers, we found a ton of success with blog posts and for another audience with video. So I think it comes down to knowing who it is that you're trying to attract and finding the the format, the channels, the subject matter that maps to them.
0: I'm glad you brought up the podcast. I um, I wanted to ask you about the growth show. It's something that I think our listeners, if they're not already subscribed, might be interested in. And tell us a little bit about it.
2: So as I said, we kind of started it, um, I want to say like five years ago now, as a way to, it was an experiment. We were trying to figure out, you know, is this a new format that can help us reach an audience that we've had trouble reaching before? It started as sort of a, you know, it's always been kind of like an interview-based style podcast, but we've spun off other types of podcasts since then to try to test out different angles and different theories. The Growth Show, even though it's always been this interview-style podcast, it's each season kind of evolves. So this last summer, we did a focus on pivots and companies in particular that had to make major swings as a result of the crisis, the economic and, and global health crisis, And that was one of my favorite seasons because the stories that came out of this summer season are just, I mean, they're amazing. There's this guy, uh, Coffee on Q. So there's a company in Australia. They make, they sell coffee and you would think that's not that big of a problem when the pandemic hits, like everybody still drinks coffee, but they sold coffee exclusively to conferences and events. They didn't sell to direct direct to consumer, they didn't sell anything online, there was no e-commerce, it was just they were the coffee provider for events. And they woke up in February and every event in Australia was canceled. And they had no they went from, you know, a reliable customer base to no customer base. And so in 12 hours, they got up a direct to consumer arm of their business using modern technology and using the customer loyalty that they had built through their, their past customers. And, and it took off, like it did really well. And he had always, he said in the interview, you know, it had always been sort of in the back of my mind to someday do a direct to consumer coffee sales motion. And I just never really got around to it. And then this hit and innovation was expedited by years. And so stories like that, I find really interesting of like, you know, what do you, what are the bright sides coming out of this really hard time, and how do you completely how do you hang on to your center and completely reimagine your future in a time when everything's changing?
0: It's a great a great podcast and and, and I haven't listened to that episode yet, but but I'm going to go back and listen to it when when we wrap today. It does make me want to kind of follow on to. This forced evolution under the current circumstances. You know, like yeah. in our business, it's really driven a tremendous amount of evolution around how we work remotely and how we collaborate. It's driven some kind of good innovation and learning around our own kind of content marketing vehicles. Like here we are hosting a podcast together, for example. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that have changed, maybe for you personally, but, but, but specifically at, at HubSpot?
2: So I think that, you know, there's a bunch, everything's changed. Like there's a bunch of little things that have changed. And then the the big question becomes, which of those little things are short-term? Which of those little things are lasting changes? And how do we kind of pull the threads of each of them to sort of see where they're headed? So one thing that changed for HubSpot is um, we've always had a remote contingency of employees at HubSpot. I think it was like our third largest quote unquote, office, so people who, who worked from home. Uh, then obviously 100% of us went remote. Uh, we beginning in January will give people the option of being remote permanently, coming back to the office permanently, um, or doing some sort of a hybrid where you're in the office a couple of days a week. And we're a microcosm of a larger shift that's happening in business. And so you can look at that and be like, OK, cool. It's just about office space. But that changes a lot right? That changes the window in which you make purchase decisions. That changes the experience of work. That changes the customer interactions that people have. And so if you pull that one thread, you can start to see all of these epiphenomenal shifts in the way that we shop, buy, and engage with businesses. And so we're starting to think about what does that mean for our customers and for their customers? And how do we build software to facilitate that um, over time? And how do we market in a way to facilitate that? So that's one change. I think a really positive that comes out of that is if we go remote, that opens us up to employees all over the world. And that allows us to bring in a much more diverse uh, workforce, which you know, we all know that like diverse teams are tend to be stronger teams, they have, you know, higher performance. And so that opens up flexibility for us in, in hiring and bring and the kind of talent we can bring in. Uh, but it also has some challenges, right? Like people are trying to balance and split work and home life. And we have to put some thought into what that means as well as a company.
0: Yeah, we're we're excited, I think, about a lot of the same opportunities, as I know so many businesses across the, the country are, right? The, we've gone fully remote and intend and to stay structured that way, and it's presented all kinds of new challenges in terms of community, culture, and connectivity. It does open up a tremendous amount of new opportunity as we grow for diversity and expansion geographically, and it's got everything that that you said in terms of that work-life balance. You know, some of us have worked remote for a long time, but so many of the team, you know, is learning how to do that for the first time and, you know, doing a wonderful job as I'm sure is the case at your organization as well, but it is not without its adjustment. and uh, you know, while the circumstances that have led to this are certainly not positive positive. I have really enjoyed kind of personally and professionally the opportunities it has created to kind of force the evolution of the of the business. And it sounds like you guys are experiencing some of the same things.
2: It's a fascinating time. I mean, education is going to change like society is going to change the way we engage with each other is going to change even little things like we're going to have to find a new way to do meetings. Right. Uh, And I don't just mean everybody's going to be on Zoom. I mean, like, if you've got a remote workforce, time zones are going to start to become a bigger and bigger challenge. And, you know, how do you have asynchronous meetings? How do you make decisions in that kind of an organization? So, yeah, if you're all like, you know, an anthropologist or just fascinated about kind of human behavior, you, you, you these are really interesting times. And there's a mix of really, really bad and some really positive things. And we just have to kind of sort it all out and lean into the good stuff.
1: I like it. I really have enjoyed all of the learning that has come along with the last nine months. I know it's been challenging for a lot of people, but I think the silver lining for all of the, all of us is just growth and learning more about ourselves and our families and our our fields too. One of the things I was interested in asking you about, Megan, um, is how young leaders can really succeed both in times of crisis like COVID in general and how they can start to advance their careers and have their voice heard in a remote environment. Because I know a lot of young professionals, especially young women, do find it really hard to share their voice and doing so in a remote environment can be even more challenging. You've certainly had a great career at HubSpot prior to that. Any kind of advice or practical feedback around how young young professionals can succeed right now?
2: It's so funny. I just had a meeting with a, um, a new HubSpotter uh, earlier this morning, and she asked me the same exact question. So um, I'll see if I, I get it any better this time around. Well, there's two questions in there. There's sort of how do you put yourself out there and grow in authority and influence as as a young and, and developing leader and then there's how do you do that with this new remote factor thrown into the mix I think for the first part you know I think it comes down to two things for me it always has like one is just being perceptive and being a an observant scholar of what all is going on around hitting times like this. And instead of getting nervous and kind of clamping down, opening up and asking questions and learning, because when people start to stand out, it's when they start to see beyond their own context and they can pull in threads from like, Oh, this team over here is doing this or this company over here is doing this. And can we learn from that and act, you know, position yourself as someone who sort of can galvanize ideas and streamline them to make the whole company better. So I think there's like a a piece of it that's just like, be be perceptive and be a learner and share what you're learning. And that's great because you can do that if you're 22 and just eyes open to the world. I think the other piece of it is harder which is how do you find the most authentic way for you to share your voice, lead, hold court in a room. And this is the piece that a lot of people struggle with because, you know, I think it's really easy to look at the leaders in the room today and say, I've got to do it exactly like them. And, uh, you know, that's great if you are exactly like them, but if they're extroverted and funny and loud and you're introverted and, you know, more reserved, that's a hard, that's just a not natural model for you to follow. So I think it's about finding, getting over the fact that you don't have to do it just like them and finding the way for you to have an authentic voice in the room. You, I've, to- I've told countless people that like, it's not about who talks the most in the meeting. If you say one thing in a meeting, it's fine. As long as like you, that thing is thoughtful, you deliver it with conviction and with clarity and it moves the conversation forward, Right. So I think it's it's the combination of those two things. Now, how do you do that in a world where we're all on Zoom? I think we're all still learning that, right? I think that's, you know, A, it's a little bit harder to have observations about what's going around, on around the company if you physically can't see that. So you've got to put yourself out there a little bit more. You've got to find new ways around it, but maybe it opens up new doors for being able to literally like raise your hand in a zoom or to use the chat functionality and stand out that way. Like there's for every new element, there's a way to work it. We just haven't, we have to kind of figure out what that is.
0: Good stuff. I really can't let you go without asking you about Die Hard. Oh yeah. Well,
2: we've got,
0: I think we've got, we've got all the time we need. I mean, Hans Gruber taught me how to be a sophisticated villain in a movie. I mean, you know, what's not to love? But then I have to make an admission. I know. That's the only diehard I've seen. I I didn't realize there were other diehards.
2: Oh, there's, oh, you've got weekend plans now. There's There's a whole slew of them. Samuel L. Jackson is in one. The best one has Samuel L. Jackson in it. Die Hard 3 is my personal favorite. And then they kind of, there's whole debates about how to rank these things, but that's that's my pinnacle. But yeah, I've been, I've been, I've got a thing for like 90s action kind of comedy movies. So Bad Boys, uh, Die Hard, uh, Sneakers is is a little earlier than 90s, but like that kind of era. And I've actually been reliving them a lot recently because we've been stuck inside and You know, there's there's a lot of tough stuff going on in the world around us, so it's been like a nice little recluse to to go and revisit all those.
0: Let me let me just say for the record that that's the first time I've ever heard anyone refer to Die Hard as a respite from from the outside world. (laughs) Totally, totally get it. Totally get it. That's good stuff.
1: That's fine. You'll have to add Rambo to the list too, Megan. Good, we'll do.
0: Megan, is there anything else that, that you'd like to cover or share with our listeners today before before we part ways?
2: Uh, you know, I think it's just, we we've touched on it already, but, you know, there aren't a lot of times in the span of a life like we're going through right now. And you just, if you come out of this year the same way you went in, you've missed the boat somewhere, right? And so this is just a tremendous time for personal development, for development as a leader in your team, for development of your company and the way you approach your, the way you engage with customers, for development of us as like a society and a world. And I think that that has really kind of, that thought has really sort of pulled me through what have been tougher days this year. You know, I guess the only thing I would leave with people is there are all sorts of like really cliched things that people said about this time right it's unprecedented new normal uncharted territory Uh, and they were all true but they were all insufficient obviously but I think like for that last one this is indeed uncharted territory but like we all have the empty paper in front of us on which to draw the map and so I think that we collectively as an industry, as marketers, as, as individuals, as leaders in the healthcare space, like we can be, play a role in defining what that map looks like for the future. And so I would just say, don't sit that out.
0: It's great perspective and really good advice. Megan Keeney Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really in- yeah. enjoyable and fun discussion.
1: I loved it. I'm so glad you guys reached out.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.